Welcome to Ejo, the podcast. Welcome to Ejo, the podcast. My name is Surabhi Ranganathan, and I'm here with my co-host, Megan Donaldson. Hello, Megan. Hi there. Having discussed statues and colonial loot, we move on today to the third episode in our series, Reckonings with Europe. We take up the object of archives, how the law treats the archives of the states in particular, and what these archives can and cannot tell us. We have with us today two terrific guests, each of whom negotiates with archives in distinct ways. James Lowry is Assistant Professor at the Graduate School of Library and Information Studies, Queen's College, City University of New York. He's editor of the forthcoming volume, Disputed Archival Heritage, and of 2017's Displaced Archives, a theme we'll pick up in a moment. Hello, James. Hi there. Thanks for having me today. Great to see you. Meredith Toretta is full professor, Department of History at the University of Ottawa. Her work has explored tensions between human rights and revolutionary liberation movements in the British and French Cameroons, and she's now researching a book called Activism Along the Global Fringe, Rogue Lawyers, International Law and African Rights Claims in the 20th Century. Hello, Meredith. Hi, it's so great to be here. Look forward to the conversation. We'd hoped also to have Moses Achonu with us today, but that wasn't possible. Moses is Cornelius Vanderbilt Professor of History at Vanderbilt and a specialist in the modern history of Africa. His work has shaped some of our lines of inquiry today, so we wanted to acknowledge him now, but we'll be bringing him back for a substantive discussion in a future episode. Archives will be a familiar object for many of our listeners, and international lawyers will think immediately of certain kinds of archives, of foreign ministries, embassies, international organisations. Of course, archives don't have to be archives of states and organisations but that is a large subset of archives and so far relatively privileged in histories of international law. States do, to different extents, police access to their archives as well as to what is found in them. Archives are a marker of sovereignty and a helpful resource for establishing legal claims. It's thus perhaps obvious that rifts arise where the political form is remade, when empire gives away to a post-colonial state or one state to many. In such circumstances, who gets control of the archive? And what responsibilities does that control bring? Efforts to offer some limited answer to these questions by way of treaty, the 1983 Vienna Convention on Succession of States in Respect of State Property, Archives and Debts, have proven largely ineffectual. We might then start by asking James a little bit about how such questions play out in practice. Historically, in Europe, when one power would occupy the territory of another, um, the archives of that administration would go with Um, would be seceded to the new power for the continuity of administration. And with the Second World War, we really see an interruption to this practice. Um, And so many of the disputes that are still with us today, for example, in Eastern Europe, um, don't kind of meet this, um, this traditional norm. And certainly in the cases of decolonization, we have seen um, a refusal of the European powers to um, engage with um, discussions about repatriation, um, let alone to really entertain uh, what was once a, a common practice of, of returning records. Um, and so uh, the international archival 
community has tended to take a legalistic approach to this question. Um, and so we'll see the involvement of the International Council on Archives in the Vienna Convention of 1983 um, and its efforts working with UNESCO to try to come up with kind of model bilateral agreements um, that can be used. And those bilateral agreements really haven't um, been picked up and used in practice. And what we see in practice actually is uh, a lot of kind of cultural diplomacy going on. So a lot of bargaining using archives as kind of bargaining chips. So in a sense, we can say that legal approaches have have failed to um, to bring about the repatriation of records. And so more recently, um, the community is is talking much more about kind of ethics of care approaches and other means of, of trying to facilitate exchange, um, uh, the concept of shared archival heritage as a framing that would allow us to, to bridge kind of political divides. Um, and then interestingly, most recently, there's a, a scholar called Jamila Gadar, who uh, in the, the book that you just mentioned, the forthcoming disputed archival heritage, she has a chapter where she calls on um, archivists around the world to try and uh, return to the Vienna Convention and to begin to lobby for archivists to push their governments to to sign on to the convention. So I think that's quite interesting after, you know, um, 40 years of, of silence on that question. Yeah. It's Thank interesting you. what you say about the relationship between the essentially legal framework and then uh, a professional archival framework working alongside it actually mirrors some of what we've seen in the episodes about um, recovery of colonial loot and repatriation of colonial loot, the centre of gravity of the argument, in a sense, moves from the legal framework to some other locus of professional expertise. Um, could you say a little bit more about the the idea of perhaps the ethic of care as a way of structuring these relationships? So archival studies as a field has um, only really engaged recently with this. And I know that in economics, for example, kind of feminist ethics have, have long um, been discussed and applied. Um, and so we're kind of catching up a little, but um, thinking about what would it mean to uh, empathize with the people who are documented in these records or whose ancestors are documented in these records and really ask ourselves, you know, um, so uh, in a piece I wrote in 2017, I was reflecting on my ability to go into the National Archives um, in London and to access records that are about very kind of um, localised um, events and personalities in Kenya, for example, in the case of the migrated archives. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot of really um, uh, emotive kind of content in these records. There, there are people pleading with the authorities to be allowed to visit um, a family member who is incarcerated because of their independence activism, for example. And and what does it mean for um, the people who are documented in these records to be so far removed from... I mean, they are literally inaccessible unless you can afford the airfare um, to, to come to London and, and see them. There are no plans to digitise these records. Um, and if there were plans to digitise these records, then there's another question about the power dynamics in that. Um, who has the right to decide what gets digitised and made available online? Um, and really, there's a possibility here that, that digital technologies just afford another way of, of abusing that power imbalance. Um, 
And when you yeah. talk about shared archival heritage, is that a sort of shorthand for this kind of digitization project, which might get around the question of who who holds the physical paper, or is there some other concept? Yeah, so that idea comes to us from the world of museum artifacts um, and um, the attempt. Um, so the International Council on Archives has named its new expert group on uh, on this matter, the expert group on shared archival heritage. And the idea is to try and be a little diplomatic and um, uh, yeah, take a different kind of approach rather than centering dispute with with centering the sharedness. Um, and that model, I think, does work in cases like the records related to Yugoslavia, where there was a kind of federal uh, kind of government that broke apart. And so there is a question about who, I mean, these records relate to now independent um, nations. And so in a sense, they are shared. But how shared are records, for example, the migrated archives that are in London, how shared are they when they were um, created uh, about another people? Um, they were participating in the domination of, of, of this people and often in an attempt to erase cultural or informational practices that pre-existed colonialism. Um, and now uh, they are essential elements of the history of these, these countries, but they are, um, yeah, expropriated to Europe. So... Um, whether or not sharedness is a, a suitable framing in post-colonial cases, I think we could argue um, perhaps it's not. Yeah. Can I just ask you to say a little bit more about the the idea of these migrated archives and where that category of migrated archives comes from in the particular Kenyan context? And then yeah. um, how that relates to the idea of the displaced archive as a category with which mm. professionals are working? Yeah. So um, in Commonwealth countries, we've long spoken about migrated archives in a general sense. Um, and so it was a kind of synonym for displaced archives. But then um, in 2011, when Ken, uh, four Kenyan litigants brought a claim against the UK for um, compensation for abuses suffered during um, the independence struggle, these records that archivists across the Commonwealth knew about for decades, um, the UK government finally said, yes, okay, we do have these records. And then a plan was put in place to move them from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office to, to the National Archives. And it was really from that point on that we started to speak about the migrated archive as a proper noun. So I think in general, when we talk about the migrated archive, we're talking about a, a distinct series that exists now at the UK National Archives. Um, and I think displaced archives is a more general term. And this category of displaced archives, did that emerge um, from precisely this discussion of trying to make sense of ownership? Or Yeah, I mean, some of the work that UNESCO and ICA were doing in um, the 70s and 80s, the, the term in use then was disputed archival heritage or disputed archival claims. Um, yeah, so it's only now that we're really starting to to try and pin down the terminology and try and define more precisely what these what these terms mean. Yeah. And if I understand rightly, the displaced archives include um, potentially post-colonial disputed archives, um, archives from the breakup of formerly independent entities or, or communities. Um, there would also be wartime legacy yeah. issues of disputed archives. Would those be the main categories? 
Right, yeah. Um, those are the categories that were identified in a lot of this work that was happening in the 70s. But um, a couple of years ago, we did a, an international survey to get a picture of what kinds of claims exist at the moment. And interestingly, we saw claims being made by particular ethnic communities um, and also kind of um, regional or sub-national claims made against national governments. So in the case of um, the island of Madeira making a claim against the, the government of Portugal. Um, so really um, a turn to increasing localization. I found it really interesting that you, you know, so you talk about this sort of the, these efforts to return to the treaty and, and do something with its text and also these efforts to redefine, um, you know, archival access in terms of an ethic of care and so forth. Could you say a little bit more about how, what, if anything, has been state response to these, both of these endeavors? Mm. Yes. Um, so... There exists within the International Council on Archives a group called the Forum of National Archivists, mm -hmm. and the president of the forum is the National Archivist of the UK. Um, and he has been really open to these discussions, actually. He has um, made time at at least two of the forum's meetings to have uh, discussions about some of the particular elements of, um, of these problems. Um, and so that's encouraging, but I think that neither the ethics of care approach nor the legalistic approach has actually resulted in any repatriations. And I think that's the, the benchmark that we should be using to, to see, you know, what's really having an effect here. So there have been repatriations recently. There's been uh, the US has returned records to Iraq and the Netherlands has returned records to Suriname. Those are the, the two most recent cases I'm aware of. But those... Um, relate entirely to bilateral relations, to political considerations, economic and military cooperation. Um, so actually the archival theory has had, I think, very little to, uh, to do uh, with these repatriations, uh, which is perhaps a little disappointing, but I think it's important that the archival communities in, in the countries concerned continue to mm -hmm. put their voices forward uh, in, um, in this conversation. And is it possible to detect patterns in what does get repatriated and what doesn't? Uh, not really. And I think that was the mistake that uh, our predecessors were making back in the 70s and 80s. They were looking for general rules that would be broadly applicable. But every archival displacement is so unique. I mean, the particulars of the history, the politics, the content of the records. Um, there is, I think, really no point in trying to come up with universal um, statements about what works and what doesn't, um, but really engaging with the particular circumstances of, of each case. Yeah. So thank you, James. What we've heard from you so far about you know, the struggles over state and imperial archives clearly gives us the sense that these archives are important. They matter. They, they have things that are important to say to us today. But We've also been understanding that many histories, many possible histories of international law or of the international more broadly, are precisely not in these archives, or at least they're not in these archives in any straightforward way. Meredith, might we bring you in here to say more about this? As a historian of Africa, your work immediately confronts these questions of archives and their limits. Could you perhaps describe for us your research projects? Uh, tell us a little bit about what kinds of archives you rely on and what are the challenges in terms of finding or not finding histories in these archives? The book that I'm currently writing is uh, is about disruptors, 
rights claimants and their advocates in Africa. Um, so I'm a bit of an imposter here in that I don't study international law per se. Uh, my interest in it stems from my interest in the historical actors who sought to leverage the law or to shape it to support the rights claims of Africans under colonial administration. So these actors are anti-colonialist advocate lawyers. That's how I'm usually referring to the lawyers who are doing this work um, and African rights claimants primarily. And it's... In terms of geographical focus, I'm trying something new, um, which is not usual for Africanists, which is uh, to work in the internationally mandated territories. Uh, so in other words, the League of Nations mandate territories from the first to the second world war, which then became the United Nations trust territories after the second world war, with the exception of Southwest Africa, because the Union of South Africa, of course, refused to, to draw up a trusteeship agreement at the UN to everyone's surprise. So um, this is atypical insofar as a properly trained historian of Africa typically works in a in a in a re in a particular region of the continent. But these uh, territories, there were eight of them, are located in various various regions. So in my approach, I'm guided by uh, I try to find who 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 is it whether an African rights claimant or an advocate or lawyer, who were the, those actors who found anything useful in the law, whether at the colonial, the metropolitan or the international levels, um, anything useful in the law to advance a legal argument against colonialism in various settings. So once again, whether this was in local courtrooms or colonial courtrooms or regional courts of appeal, if we think of French West Africa, for instance, um, state level or metropolitan courts, such as the Court of Cassation or the State Council in France or the Privy Council in the UK. I'm focused as well on those lawyers who advised or represented petitioners at the United Nations. Um, and particularly those who sought to bring petitioners to expose administering authorities' violations of trusteeship agreements in the international arena of the United Nations. So um, in terms of where these archives are located or my access point um, to working in this way, if we start with the state or official archives, um, you know, those at the metropolitan level are those that kept tabs you know, on advocate lawyers. So through the intelligence agencies, so the British National Archives, we think of the security service or the MI5 personal files. So I've gotten quite a lot on um, for example, Jeffrey Bing, who was Queen's counsel and advisor to Kwame Nkrumah early on uh, from those files, or Dennis Noel Pritt, who was um, legal counsel to Julius Nyerere in the 1950s in, in Tanganyika. Um, or on the French side, we can think of the service de liaison avec les originaires des territoires français d'outre-mer. Um, so that's within the, the sort of liaison intelligence gatherings on anyone who uh, was of colonial origin in overseas France. Um, and then moving down to the level of territorial administrations, you know, James talked about the Migrated Archive, you know, which is the, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and uh, the predecessors of the, of the 
the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. There are a lot of intelligence files in the migrated archive, not just from Kenya, but from, you know, across the British Empire uh, at, during the period of decolonization. And the equivalent to that in France would be uh, various agencies that and minister, ministries that um, were working under the rubric of affaires politiques. So we can think of the service d'études et de la documentation, etc. Um, as far as the UN records go, those of particular interest to me are the fourth committee records, which was um, the committee dealing with non-self-governing territories. And that's the committee to which the trusteeship council reported. And in these bodies, the fourth committee and the trusteeship council both, um, we do have the occasional appearance of lawyers, such as the ones that I'm focused on. In these files as well, we find petitions and administering authorities' responses to the petitions written by trust territory inhabitants. This is really interesting because what you're telling us is in a way in these archives, distributed, of course, across various archives, is a lot of material of a certain kind. Every time that there's actually archival abundance, there's also alongside it archival silence, right? Because the very abundance of a certain kind of narrative means we have to wonder about what is not then being, you know, what is being erased in that same, in the production of that very narrative. Right. So that's really an interesting question because actually the state and official archives are not the, the records that I really prioritize as I'm trying to put these histories together, the history of, of legal advocacy and rights claimants in these um, trust territories in Africa. So what's been more useful to me than, say, official state or UN archives are the writings of the advocate lawyers themselves, mm -hmm. uh, the, their correspondence with their African defendants, um, and most often, if they're in correspondence with an African defendant, that person is a is a prisoner. So there's prison correspondence. Um, so if I can find the files of an advocate lawyer, and of course the state archive sort of flags who these people might be, then I have to follow through and locate and find out whether that lawyer has kept records that are open to the public somewhere. And um, I have found several of them. They're very rich files. Um, oftentimes these lawyers included, uh, you know, copies of the cases that they had argued, complete with annotations and marginalia, um, you know, on particular ordinances or decrees that they found to be irregular in terms of metropolitan justice. Um, they sometimes included newspaper clippings in addition to the correspondence with the people that they're representing. But one thing that I have discovered as I've located these uh, particular lawyers' files is that white men were far more likely to keep their files and have them donated to public archives than anyone else. So it makes it very difficult then to, um, to, to, to follow through and find a similar depth of material uh, for black lawyers. There is a uh, French Guadeloupean lawyer named Silver Alcambre, A-L-C-A-N-D-R-E. I've actually been in touch with Silver Alcambre's son, uh, who is still living in France. And through conversations with him, I've discovered that uh, Silver Alcambre did not actually keep any records or any, any archives whatsoever. So it's, it's almost like I'm trying to piece together the story um, of the importance of black 
legal advocacy or pan-black solidarity. My concern is that because of the volume of preservation, right, of certain archives over others, uh, so far the story of activists or engaged lawyers that's been recounted, um, there is some historical scholarship on these figures in France, particularly, um, but so far the emphasis is entirely on white lawyers who come out of the Second World War in France had been a part of the resistance. Some of them were Jewish, and they're very much interested in doing something revolutionary with the law as the French Union is forming um, under the, the, the new constitution, etc. But what's sort of overshadowed then are the contributions of Antillian lawyers in that case. Could you say more about the other ways in which you find your ways around the limits of these records? Are there other kinds of materials, non-textual materials, for example, that you use? Um, well, it's a very slow process and it involves a lot of uh, digging for a needle in a haystack, so to speak. So um, I read the, the published writings or any writings that uh, these lawyers may have left. So to mention once again, Silver Alcombe, um, he published numerous things from 1945 to 1973. Um, for example, a four volume um, series on um, the emancipation des peuples colonisés, the emancipation of colonized peoples, um, which is very rich. It contains a lot of autobiographical material. It contains a lot of archival material insofar as he included letters that his correspondence with um, important figures in the African diaspora, including um, one of the editors of Crisis, which is a, the NAACP journal at the time. Um, he included photographs of himself and of his family, his itineraries, the first time he went to Africa, which he referred to as the land of my ancestors in 1949. He gave detailed accounts of where he went. So um, this kind of source is very rich. Uh, so through these kinds of uh, materials, I can learn more about the approach, but a lot of it is just happening to fall on a detail that shows up somewhere that gives me another small piece of the puzzle. That is really fascinating. I wonder if I might ask all three of you a general question. So this thing of putting the you know pieces of the puzzle together, may I ask if if you have detected patterns in how how lawyers and historians do this and do they do this differently? So I'm not asking any of you to speak to your entire field, but are there differences in the ways in which, you know, lawyers sense what the puzzle is and historians sense what the puzzle is? So I'd be happy to jump in first, James, unless you, you, you have something at the ready. Okay. Um, so as I said earlier, I'm not, you know, I don't study international law per se. So I speak to this question as a historian, um, but I do find that those scholars, legal scholars with whom I've discussed archival research, um, tend to focus more on things like written opinions or interpretations, um, you know, things written by particular jurists on certain matters like treaties or, um, so for example, um, if we think of Umut Ozu in his work on a legal, trying to put together a legal understanding of, of decolonization, um, he sort of approaches it through legal writings of, for instance, Mohammed Bijawi, for um, you know who who initially wrote on 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 the law's place in the Algerian Revolution, and then later you know Ozu takes it forward to to looking at his writings on the status of Western Sahara fifteen years later, which was also a question of self determination. So the difference I see is really the object 
of research. My object of research or my focus is really the historical actor. So uh, yes, I'm looking at how the historical actor is trying to use the law, but I don't really care about the law. <laughs> I only care about it insofar as it becomes a tool for this historical actor to make an argument against colonialism or to represent an African rights claimant. So because of that, I will follow that historical actor into whatever dimension of the law is useful to him or her at a given time. And James, same question. Do lawyers and historians access the archive differently? I think that I'm probably not qualified to speak about that exactly, but um, there is that tension between the law and history in archival practice and really always has been. I mean, a lot of thinking about how we determine the authenticity of records comes to us from kind of legal theory from 17th century Germany. Um, and so there has always, you know, uh, been um, archivists have always been very aware of the the legal uses of of records, and so there is a kind of tension between these two affordances of of the protection of rights and entitlements on one hand, and then uh, the the longer term uses for the writing of history on the other. And I think here of um, um, so a colleague Stanley Griffin, uh, working at the University of the West Indies, is really interested in this question of you know when uh, Black Caribbean people seek information about their enslaved ancestors. They are looking to transactional records that were created for the protection of property rights at that time. Um, and uh, so in preserving kind of ship manifests and registers from that period, um, archives and archivists are, are kind of uh, investing in preserving that information, but at what cost? Because if your interest is actually historical, then that archival, that colonial kind of archival practice exists within a much broader information landscape where you have the oral traditions that survived, um, uh, you know, the Middle Passage and uh, then the, the practices, the knowledge and cultural practices of the indigenous people of those islands. And so he's asking a question about do we actually need to be um, refocusing our archival efforts to uh, recuperate these kind of at-risk uh, and potentially already lost in some cases um, pre-colonial archival practices? That actually is a really important question and one that perhaps we should come back to in a future episode of this uh, podcast. But Megan, did you want to also come in on this question? You're a legal historian as well. So I'm going to drag the focus back from this very important discussion, I think, about the necessity of moving away from documents altogether straight back to the domain of documents, mm -hmm. just because that is sort of archetypally what lawyers work with. And I think there's a moment sort of in the early 20th century where you can really see genres of working with archival documents, which are doing something both for the state as a legal actor and for history. So I'm thinking now of these enormous collections like the British documents on the origin of the war, for example, after World War I, where uh, there's sort of a, a process of digging out and publishing selected diplomatic documents, which would be both a resource for historians and a way of vindicating a sort of legal posture about responsibility for, for the war. And 
you can read in the archives the discussions that officials are having about this, whether it's desirable to put in one document or another document, and the fear they have that if they leave something out, the state papers of another power will reveal that correspondence and the historical integrity of their own collection will be undermined. So, of course, there's a state's craft to what documents you reproduce, but it's disciplined by this rather crude sense of you know, historical integrity or completeness of the record. That's obviously quite an artificial convergence between law and history. Um, but more generally, I suppose lawyers have quite a stylized idea of what legal material in the archives is relevant. So a sort of artificial line, what counts as part of the travaux préparatoire, the conversation in the corridor might not, right? But what's said in the room as they're negotiating the text very well might, and that might become part of a resource for interpretation. In the judicial context, there's actually quite a strong sense that the discussions between judges which precede the judgment shouldn't be part of any legally significant records. So there's a stronger sense of division there than one finds with, with treaties. Um, but there is a distinction, I think, between people who are doing um, legal scholarship and people who are advocates, because if you're an advocate, you are looking for every piece of information you can find. And the work of the litigators with these Kenyan migrated um, archives shows that. If there hadn't been that litigation, the archives probably wouldn't have come to light. And the archives were absolutely central to being able to make the claims that were made. So there's something quite productive about the way that claim making and advocacy unsettles the, the records as well. Thank you all. And finally, in closing, are there any thoughts you'd like to leave us with perhaps around questions of archival equity? One thing that I would like to say, I think, is that, you know, thinking about the law and archives is that in the absence of an international kind of legal apparatus that actually works, um, we are kind of having these conversations in the terms of the laws of the colonizing countries. So I'm thinking about the way that the migrated archive is considered a UK public records as defined in the the Act of 1958 and how, you know, they have legal advice supporting this claim, but we can't see it. And it's because of the provisions of the UK Freedom of Information Law that we can't see this legal advice. So the whole conversation is shaped by European law. Another issue that arises around, uh, around archives is a question of preservation and access. Well, two questions, really. So, um, and right now there's been a emphasis on digitization with the growth of the digital humanities, et cetera. And I think there we need to sort of take a step back and ask what does digitization amplify and what does it erase? Um, many of the files that I've worked with, particularly at the, at the local level uh, throughout Cameroon, for example, um, they're not likely to be digitized at any time. Um, in the near future, or perhaps even in the far future, but nonetheless, they do contain, they have a much different content than what's preserved in the metropole in terms of, for instance, they offer levels of detail that you can't really see in the records that the state, the French state or the British state decided to, to bring home with them. Um, and then of course, there's always a question of access to archives for internationalist historians um, the way that we put together projects that are multi-sided um, is an enormous privilege that enables a particular view of the past. Um, and I'm not sure what to make of that, that privileged view, which is 
you know, that's sort of an ethical question there as well. Yeah, could, could I jump in there and just um, picking up on what Meredith has said about the ethics of digitization, I'm thinking again about um, Stanley Griffin and what he's saying about these uh, Caribbean records is really that, um, you know, when money is coming, when there's well-funded European institutions who are reaching out and offering to digitize this material, it is really for the benefit of European scholars and European publics and He's suggesting that it's actually another form of extraction from the Caribbean because um, it's the funders are setting the agendas for what gets digitized, digitized and what doesn't. Yeah, and it's also a way of making the asymmetries in the historical record more pronounced, even more pronounced. I mean, those that already exist are then, you know, like they become greater. I think that was enormously stimulating, and the way of I think ending on political economy of digitization and the question of ethics, right? What's the ethical dimension of a historical project which positions us in a kind of bird's eye view, which is illusory to some extent, but gives a degree of mastery or a feeling of mastery, which, you know, the individual descendants or families of people that are in these records won't, won't feel. I think that's wonderful. So thank you so much, James and Meredith, uh, for giving us your time and discussing all of these questions with us today. To stay up to date with what's happening in the world of international law and listen to previous episodes of the podcast, visit egiltalk.org.